We're going to be reading verses 24 through 37 this morning as we finish our three-part series on Mark chapter 13. Let's begin in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God add his blessing to the reading, the preaching, and the teaching of the word this morning. Well, we've been in Mark chapter 13. This is now the third week. This is the third sermon that we have looked at as we look on this one unified and whole teaching of Jesus on the end times. Let me just give you a big picture of how we've gotten here, in case you haven't been here for the whole series. Jesus is leaving the temple. As he's leaving the temple, one of his disciples looks at these massive stones and says, kind of arresting the attention of the rest of the disciples, look at these stones. He's amazed. Everything that we have in history about the temple would have made it a world wonder. It is beyond comprehension. It was described as a mountain of marble and gold. 35 acres. And Jesus' response wasn't to marvel at the stones. He actually reveals something about the future that was completely unexpected and catches his disciples off guard. He says, do you see these stones? Not one will be left on top of the other. It will be completely torn down and destroyed. The disciples proceed back to where they're staying. So they walk across the Kidron Valley and they're going to walk up the, the, kind of the, the mountain, what we often call the Mount of Olives. They're staying in Bethany. And Bethany has the best view of the temple complex. 
And so the picture we have in our mind, it's not necessarily in Scripture, but we do know that four of Jesus' disciples come to him. They've had perhaps an hour-long journey. Maybe they've already had dinner. Jesus is sitting out, uh, looking over the temple complex, and they come and say, when will these things be, and what will be the signs? Matthew actually tells us very specifically something that Mark doesn't. It says, what will be the sign of the end times? And so Jesus begins to answer their questions, but as we have been discussing, Jesus doesn't give all of the details. He sketches an outline from literally that day until the end of time. And so we've been unpacking that each week as we have come together and we've looked at Mark 13. But to give you that quick outline, the first point was the temple is going to be destroyed and he doesn't tell his disciples when. The second thing that Jesus makes clear is that there's going to be a sign. This is what we looked at last week, and it's a very technical word. It's the abomination of desolation. We first come to this word or this group of wording in Daniel. It's mentioned three times. And so Jesus is very specifically picking up on something in Daniel and pointing to the abomination of desolation as the sign that the end of times is here. And when we pick up in verses 24 to 27, Jesus has told them about the destruction of the temple. He's told them about the sign of desolation. And that is where we begin our reading today. To provide some important context for us, in case you weren't here last week, that the sign of the abomination of of desolation was the sign that a great tribulation a time of suffering that has never been known in all of human history. This time period is the most wicked, destructive day that we or the world will ever see. The wickedness unleashed, the power of Satan and his demons to destroy and persecute will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. If we were to think about and and, and if we are to perceive, it would appear that the world is moving towards absolute chaos and collapse. Without exaggeration, as I've said already, it is the darkest days in human history. And so when we picked up in verses 24 through 37, the thing that you should immediately see is that those darkest days days just got darker. It begins with, but in those days after that tribulation, the tribulation that was mentioned in the, passage, the, the, the previous passage, it says the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from the heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Darkest days just got darker. Literally. We had seen before in in verses 5 through 13, Jesus had talked about the fact that there would be wars and rumors of wars, that there would be famine and earthquake. But now, something is going to take place that is going to foreshadow literally the end of time, and that is 
the sun and the moon, the stars, what gives light. At the very beginning of creation, when God spoke into existence and said, let there be light, we almost have here the beginning where God speaks and now the end of time where that light is taken. I don't know if you have a fear of darkness. Maybe it's because we've, if, if you don't have a fear of darkness, maybe it's because you probably have never experienced complete darkness. When your eye can perceive nothing, right? We've all probably been that little kid where you turn off the, the, the light in the room and you kind of wait, you want to run across the room, you kind of know where things are, your eyes get acclimated and you can kind of see things in the dark. But I don't know if any of you have ever been to where it's so dark that you can perceive nothing. The kind of fear that begins to enrapture your soul where... The, the sensory perception that helps us navigate, that helps us know where, what is safe and where there is danger. We can hear, but we can't see. Can you imagine this picture? And it's only with that context that I can tell you the title of our sermon today because in the darkest day, literally, of human history, the most glorious light... That is at the time where chaos and disorder and collapse seems inevitable, Jesus returns in power and glory. The triumphant return of Jesus. The passage we have in front of us today gives us words of comfort and confidence this morning. All is not lost. The darkest day has been... uh, in a sense, fulfilled. It has run its course. Satan and his powers and those uh, that are working to destroy all that is good and God's good creation, trying to wipe out the image of God in creation, not only in the world, but in us. Jesus comes riding in the clouds, breaking through, turning tragedy to triumph. And so this morning as we look at verses 24 to 37, there's three certainties that I want us to hold on to in a world that will be falling apart. Why does Jesus give us these words? Well, Jesus gives us these words so that we might be absolutely certain. We have a steadfast confidence. And those three certainties are the certainty of Jesus' return, verses 24 to 27, the certainty of Jesus' promises in verses 28 through 31, and the certainty of Jesus' instructions in verses 32 to 37. Now that I've outlined for you where we're going in the passage, let me press pause for one second, because one thing I have not done in this entire series is connect some of the end-time teachings. Maybe just a spoiler alert, I'm not going to make all the connections, because that's not the purpose of this sermon series. But if you are familiar with the end times, let me just speak to those who you might be wanting more. In regard to the end times, you need to know that Daniel, the book of Daniel, we've already referenced Daniel several times, and the 70 weeks and the four beasts that he speaks of. And in regard to the prophets who speak of that day of judgment, 
And in regard to the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation 13, where we see the dragon and the two beasts, Revelation 16, where we see the seven bowls of God's judgment poured out during the time of tribulation, or even Paul's teaching in Thessalonians, where we see the man of lawlessness, and we hear about the second coming of Jesus Christ, that all of these overlap. And Scripture has not left us in a vacuum trying to understand the end times, but we do have very specific teaching. The goal of this sermon series in Mark 13 is to share with you what Jesus shared with his disciples. This is not a, a 10-month deep dive into the apocalypse and all of the things that we could know about the end times. It is literally just to communicate what Jesus communicated with his disciples before his death which was a rough sketch of the end times. So, if you would like to know more about those things, I'll be glad to have a cup of coffee, and we can dive into the beasts and the dragons and the, 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 uh, the judgments that are poured out, but that's not for now, all right? So, just know that they are connected. We're not going to deep dive into how they are connected today, but we will take a look at some of Daniel and some of Revelation where it connects with our passage. So let's get right in to the certainty of Jesus' return in verses 24 through 27. Just very quickly, a connection for you that you need to see in the text. Verse 24 begins with, But in those days after that tribulation. If you have your Bible open or your phone open, you need to directly look above our passage to verse 19. In verses 19 and 20. Notice the same phrase where it says, In those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. When verse 24 picks up, it's referring to those same days. There's a direct connection between what we're speaking about today, Jesus' second coming, and verses 19 and 20. It says, For in those days... And it says, after that tribulation, what tribulation? The tribulation that was just described in verse 19 as being the the greatest tribulation from the beginning of time up until uh, that point. Now, let's move on to, very specifically, the certainty of Jesus' return. Here's what you need to know about the end times. Jesus is coming, and he's coming for you. Jesus is coming, and he's coming for you. This description that we have of the Son of Man coming with great power and glory comes straight out of the book of Daniel. I told you we won't be doing a deep dive, but where we have direct connections, let me just point it out to you. Daniel 7 speaks of this specific moment. I'll read you Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this. Daniel is writing, well before the time of Christ, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
on the darkest day of human history, came one riding the clouds of heaven in power and glory, and he comes to establish his kingdom. That kingdom, my friends, will not be like any earthly kingdom. Kingdoms come and go. Kingdoms that seem like they would last forever. When we look to Rome, when we look to Babylon, when we look to Egypt, they came, they conquered, they had power, and they disappeared. We have the history of those things. We have their influence. But they no longer hold power. Jesus is coming to establish an everlasting dominion, a kingdom which shall not pass away and will will never be destroyed. This is the kingdom which will reign over all kingdoms. And the king of that kingdom is Jesus. Think for just a minute, because there's something so unique about the fact that Jesus came in power and glory. When Jesus came and was born as a baby, he came in humility. There was shepherds who knew. There was a mother who knew. There were three wise men, or what we often call three wise men. There was a group of, uh, of those who came from the east to come and worship. But Jesus came in a humble way. He did not come in power, and he did not come in glory. He veiled that glory. And there was one time where his disciples, where, where Jesus is, is with those kind of the, the inner three, and he reveals his glory to them. But at the end of time, no one will mistake the fact that Jesus is coming and he's coming in glory. And we're told that when he comes, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The world will not miss Jesus coming because he's not just coming in glory. By the way, that's why I call it the darkest day and the brightest light. That God's glory is the most magnificent, greatest Light that we know and understand when when people in the Old Testament or when God reveals his glory, it was a light that was of a different variety. We know light from the sun. And there is one type of physical light that that our eyes and our bodies understand. One thing that we have never seen but is actually real, it is true light, it is the glory of God. The sun, the moon, the stars, they only are a reflection of God's glory. God can't reveal his glory to us. It would consume us in our sin. But when Jesus comes back, Jesus comes back in his glory. It is the greatest thing this world has ever seen. Nobody will miss this. He also comes with power. Because to come with his his glory, but to not have the power to enact his kingdom and defeat Satan, would mean that Jesus would come but he was simply an also-ran of all of those vying for control. Jesus comes with power, which means when God comes in his power, there is no hand that can, can press back and try to hold back God's plans. It's not the forces of God. God actually doesn't need an army. Although we see in the scriptures, we see Jesus riding a white horse. And we see him coming to wage war. And we see this beautiful picture of Jesus when he comes back. But the reality is God's very word would lay low all the armies arrayed against him. He spoke the world into existence, folks. His glory is seen in the fact that he has the power to speak his word. And when he speaks his word, it accomplishes his will. 
Jesus comes back in power and glory. The beautiful thing that Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back for you. It says the angels will be sent out to the very ends of the earth, and the very ends of heavens. What is this phraseology? When we die, or for some of those who have died tragic, terrible deaths for the faith, literally where their bodies have been sawn in half, their bodies are cut into pieces. Our bodies are dust. They, they, uh, they eventually become like the earth that we bury them in. The beautiful picture that Jesus gives is that there is no person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ who will be forgotten. Every single person who has, who has believed in Christ will lovingly be sought out by Jesus' angels who will be sent to the very ends of the earth so that all who have believed in him, not one would be left. No man is left down behind enemy lines. Jesus is coming back and he is bringing every single person who has placed their faith in him, placed their trust in him. Jesus lovingly sends out his angels and he's going to gather his elect to him. Jesus is coming. He is coming for you. There will not be one person left behind. There will not be one person's faith who is put to shame. Certainty number one. Jesus' return and triumph. Let's take a look at certainty number two. Jesus' promises being fulfilled. This is verses 28 through 31. The second thing that this passage reveals to us is the certainty of Jesus' promises being fulfilled. And it tells us in a unique way, it's the lesson of the fig tree. In verse 28, it says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. It doesn't say that summer has come. It says you know that summer is near. Let's talk about that fig tree. It's an example given so that we might know more clearly when Jesus' return will happen. The sign that Jesus tells his disciples to look for is the abomination of desolation. The generation that experiences that, or that experiences the abomination of desolation, Jesus, remember, we need to recall his words. He says, understand, or Mark says, let the reader understand. Understand what? Well, that the... Return of Jesus is very near. So in Palestine, the almond trees would bloom early, often before winter is past. Other trees like olives or oaks or pines or evergreens, they don't drop their leaves in winter. And so these trees, there's no way that they can announce the fact that there's a change of seasons. So the vast majority of trees, or the vast, if we were to look at things from an agricultural perspective, the vast majority of trees in Palestine showed no sign there was a changing of seasons. But there was one tree that very specifically pointed to the fact that summer was near. That was the fig tree. Because the fig tree, it loses its leaves in winter, 
And only in late spring, when winter is completely past and the weather is warm, that it begins to grow tender buds that will turn into leaves. When this happens, those who living in Palestine knew that summer is near. It is on the verge, right? We have on our calendars, we know when it's summer because it's specific, uh, specifically a date. We know that it's, whether it's March 21st or it's spring. June 21st or July 21st, it's summer. So we have them marked literally on a calendar. But we know that's actually just a calendar. We know that, but it is symbolic of the fact that our seasons change. How would those in Palestine look and recognize summer is near? It was the fig tree. So Jesus uses this illustration and he says, think of the fig tree. When you see the fig tree have those buds, you know that summer is near. In the same way, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see this sign that I've told you about, know that he is near. Who's the he? My understanding of this passage, that he is the return of Jesus in triumph and victory. In verse 30, Jesus now transitions. This is the certainty of Jesus promised. And he says, in the very same way, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Notice verse 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. The second thing we need to see is the certainty of Jesus' promises. Notice he actually uses one of his teaching uh, mechanisms here, which is a truly statement. Jesus uses a truly statement. We know that truly statement is essential or core curriculum, essential truths that Jesus wanted his disciples to know and remember. Principles for following Jesus. And he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let me just stop there about an absolutely astounding statement. What is stronger than strong? What is, there's like a riddle we have here. What will last longer than anything else? If you think about our world, and you think about what lasts, we know that civilizations have built cities and wonders Occasionally, those wonders stand the test of time. Pyramids that we see. Think of the things that are the longest standing testaments to the ability to weather the storm or things that can stand the test of time. Jesus says here, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Think about that statement for a second, folks. Jesus is saying the strongest thing in the world, the most long-lasting thing in the world is my words. This is not figurative. We just read earlier that that the heavens and the earth are in chaos and collapse. The world will come to an end. 
the mountains will crumble. The oceans will break forth. Our world is not meant to last the test of time. But you know what does? God's word. God's word will outlast us. It will outlast this earth. It will outlast his creation. And so Jesus doubles down. I don't know if when, when you buy things or products, you look for guarantees. I do. All right? And so we know that occasionally a company is so confident in its product, they will say, you have a money-back guarantee. Now, there, there's some of the fake ones that are like, this is a 30-day money-back guarantee. I'm talking the ones that say, guarantee. You don't like it, you return it. Right? So guarantees mean something to us, don't they? So when we're buying a product and we want to know actually how good this product is, one way is to look at the company who stands behind that product and say, what kind of promises or what kind of guarantees come with this product? Sometimes you have a lifetime guarantee. If anything ever goes wrong, we we think this thing is so bulletproof. You buy this, you'll buy it once in your lifetime. And in fact, if it ever wears out, You return it to us, and we will give you a new product. There's actually a few companies who still keep that kind of guarantee. A handful in the whole world. But there are some companies who back up their product with a guarantee so outrageous because they believe. Now, here's the thing. Their product doesn't actually last a lifetime, but it is a very good product. And we do look for those products. When we want to... Now, these are just economic choices, folks. We're, we're choosing which shoes to buy, which backpack to buy, which car to buy, right? But we actually do. It's really meaningful for us to know what is the guarantee that's backed up. So when Jesus has laid out the teaching about the end times, and then he backs it up with this guarantee, it should get our attention. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away into All these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words won't pass away. Man, that is the greatest guarantee the world has ever seen, ever heard, and there's only one person who can make that kind of guarantee. God himself. What we need to know for absolute certainty, or in absolute certainty, is Jesus' promises will be fulfilled. He has told us about the end times, and he says, write it down, so let it be written, so let it be done, it will be accomplished. The world will pass away, my promises won't. I don't know if there's a person we can trust more than God. Let me rephrase that, because that's probably sinful. There is not a person we can trust more. If you are in that kind of thinking, thinking, well, I think I might be able to trust, I should trust God. Well, let me tell you, you should. Because there's not a greater promise in all of human history than the very promises of God. Not only will none of his promises fail to come to pass, but Jesus says says very specifically, when it comes to the end times and these teachings, which are very hard for you to, to fully understand, to fully interpret right now, And as we sit here, we have to confess, nobody knows how to fully interpret these things. That's why I didn't go into Daniel, Revelation, Thessalonians, and every other thing that we could. It's a fool's errand. God has given those things for us to know. Let the reader understand. We are to work our best to understand those things, but nobody fully knows and understands the hour. We just know... The God behind the promises has guaranteed these things will come to pass. 
So let's take a look at the last certainty. The certainty of Jesus' instructions to stay awake. If you've been with us this entire series, then you know in the first sermon we talked about how this is the most important theme, the most important teaching of all of Jesus' teaching on the end times. And that is to stay awake. In verse 32 it says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. By the way, notice that's a change from those days. Not to get in technicalities. But when it's talking about the end times after the abomination of desolation, it says those days, those days of the great tribulation. It now moves to that day, that hour. That day and that hour specifically speaking of Jesus' return. And that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then he says, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 35, therefore stay awake. In verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Notice first the warning. No one knows the hour. Nobody knows the day. I've told you this before. When we come to teaching about the end times, it is not so that we would be preoccupied with the future. It is not so that we would try to predict the future. It is so that we would be prepared for the future. Let me draw your attention to something astounding here in this passage as well. I drew your attention to Jesus' promise before, but it says not even the angels nor the Son knows the hour or the day, or the time. Think about this for a second. Jesus was God himself. But Jesus, uh, God being Trinity, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, we have God the Spirit. Jesus being fully divine and fully human, Jesus submitted himself wholly to the Father's will and plan concerning the future to the extent that Jesus did not know the exact hour or day, nor the angels. They've left this completely and entrusted this completely into the Father's hands. The reason I point that out is, this is, once again, the most difficult thing for us. Is in our prayers and in our life not to know specific things about the future. This is why we struggle. This is why we have stress. This is why we have anxiety. Let us look to Jesus' model because God the Father has determined that no one, not the Son, not the angels, not the church, not individual believers would know when the time would come. And Jesus, although he was God, submitted himself into the will of the Father. And in the very same way, we as Jesus' disciples are asked to believe and to trust in God the Father's love, goodness, and sovereignty during the end times, rather than be given the exact details so that we can begin to plan and strategize for ourselves. Don't miss this important truth. Jesus himself was willing to submit to God's sovereign plan for the end of days. And we as his disciples must willingly follow Jesus and submitting to God as well. So here's what you need to know. What is absolutely clear? 
what is absolutely clear about verses 32 to 37 is this. Jesus' instructions for us to stay awake. Notice Jesus gives a little mini parable here. So if it wasn't already clear that the first words of Jesus' teaching, where he is uh, inviting them, in a sense, to be on their guard, and the last words, which are stay awake, and all the times in between that Jesus mentions staying awake, Jesus now gives a little story. And the story goes like this. There's a master of a house. He's going away. And as is the custom, he sets his house in order. He has many servants. And he goes to each servant and he reviews with them, here's the plan, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do to take care of the garden. Here's what you need to do to take care of the flocks. But this little story doesn't care about what is going on in the garden and what's going on in the flocks. The story focuses on one person, the doorkeeper. So Jesus tells us a little parable about what he means to stay awake. And so the doorkeeper had one job. And his specific job, in fact, the command given to him by the master of the house before he left was, stay awake. As believers, as we respond to Jesus' teaching, we have one job. One job. Jesus gives us the picture of the doorkeeper. And the job is this. Stay awake. Jesus' instructions about the end times are absolutely clear. We know this with certainty. What does it mean to kind of stay awake? Well, in these times, the the doorkeeper would have the keys to the house, the keys to the gates. And when the master comes, he should be ready. He should be sitting there as best as possible. I'm sure he might nod off then and there waiting. When is he coming back? But that's the point. They don't know. In fact, the text gives us the four watches of of how you keep Roman time. Notice in the text it says, stay awake for you do not know when the master will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Those were the four watches. So if you were to, to divide the way the Romans looked at the evening, they divide it into four watches. Mark goes through all of them. Jesus goes through all of them. He says, but we don't know. But lest he come suddenly and find you asleep, he says, stay awake. Christian, we are the doorkeeper. And Jesus' words to us are, stay awake. Let me close by giving you, I thought, what would be the best way to help you understand what it might look like to stay awake? Let me close with two other scriptures that I think will help you understand specifically or practically, what it might look like to stay awake. Matthew 26, 42, this is Jesus himself speaking to his disciples. Remember the scene. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's with his disciples. It is a, 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 the, a point of crisis in his life as he's looking down the cross and looking down the fact that he will be crucified. He's invited his, his inner circle to be with him. He's invited them to do what? To watch and pray. Matthew 26, 42 says this. Well, I'll start in verse 41. Jesus says, Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. How can you stay awake? Pray. 
Watch and pray. Because one thing is true about you and me. We have hearts that as we read God's word are motivated to want to pursue God. But in the reality of life and the difficulties of life and the journey of life, our flesh is weak and led away by a thousand other things that grab our attention and lead us to other paths. Jesus says, watch and pray. Stay awake. The second passage I want to point you to is Ephesians six ten through 13. This is the classic passage of the whole armor of God. Let me just read you. The whole passage is 10 to 20. Let me read you verses 10 to 13, and we will be done. Finally, be strong unto the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Watch and pray. Put on the whole armor of God. Jesus has left you with one word. Be the doorkeeper. Be ready. And so this morning we have three certainties. Amidst many things that our minds can pursue and all the interpretations of the end times, Daniel, Revelation, Thessalonians, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Here are three certainties for you to hold on to in a world that is and will one day completely fall apart. The certainty of Jesus' return, the certainty of Jesus' promises, the certainty of Jesus' instructions.